We'll turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Joel, to that minor prophet that we began looking at last Sunday morning. And if you'll remember, we got right into it at the beginning of Joel. There's just one verse that tells us that the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, and then he gets immediately into the message that God had given to him. And we'll see more of that message uh, this morning. But we saw last time how there was a locust, harvest, or locust um, swarm that came in and took the harvest away, that the people of God were in dire straits, were in a really bad situation as a result of these things, and Joel is coming to them in the face of this. These things have already happened to them, and he is giving them not only a recognition that these things have come, but he's telling them why, and he's pulling back the curtain for them. And so we'll begin reading at Joel chapter 1, verse 15, down through chapter 2, verse 11. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burnt all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and ask for his aid this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you recognizing that we hear some hard and even some strange things in the book of Joel, things that are strange to our ears. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would illumine us to understand the things that he inspired the prophet Joel to see and to say and to write all these thousands of years ago. We ask, Lord, that we'll see more of you and who you are as a result, especially as we come to you in Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, as we did see last time, there was a plague of locusts that had come in and had swept through the land of probably Judah at this point, the southern kingdom of Judah, and had taken away all the livelihood of the people, had taken away their food, their grain, their wine, or the future wine and the oil that they needed for all these different things. And we had seen that this was a problem for not only the people who had to eat these things and the animals who had to eat these things, but also for the very worship at the temple of God. That some of the offerings and sacrifices that were commanded to be given morning and evening at the temple, now we're not going to be able to be given. That God was really coming in judgment upon his people. And we aren't told exactly in so many words what the sin was, but we can begin to piece it together as we go through the prophecy of Joel. We saw that Joel was a prophet, which means, boys and girls, if you remember, that he is someone who has been called by God as his messenger, that he has sent as the one who is going to bring the word of the Lord to his people. In this case, what he's really doing is he is a lawyer for God. He's coming to God's covenant people, the people who swore that they would obey him and follow after him, and he is suing them and saying, you have not done the things that you have professed that you would do. You have not fulfilled your promises to God. And so he calls, as we saw in verses 12 and 13 last time, he begins to call for a time of national lament. That not only are the priests to lament before God, but they are to lead the entire people of Judah in this time of coming before God, in a time of confession, in a time of repentance, and asking God for his mercy and for his grace. They're supposed to go to Yahweh at the temple in this time of national calamity, and that's where they are meant to be drawn. And so we pick up here in verse 15 of chapter 1 this morning, and we'll see three really divisions in our text. First of all, there's the announcement in verses 15 through 20. And so Joel continues here after he's called to consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly, and he begins verse 15 with, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. We see here that Joel is now beginning to announce explicitly what he has only been hinting at before. At the main point of the book of Joel, although the locust and that plague play a key point in it, that the main point of the book of Joel is really to point us ahead to the day of the Lord. And that this locust plague itself, this terrible uh, destruction that has come upon the people, is only really meant to be a preview of sorts of what is coming not only to Israel, not only to Judah, but to the entire world. And that's known as the day of the Lord. It's meant to point to something that's more ultimate for us. And of course, we know, as we've already seen in these first 14, chapter, 14 verses of the first chapter of Joel, that there are many things going on here in this plague that previews the day of the Lord. There's destruction, there is lack, there is famine that is coming, all these terrible things that are coming upon Israel, coming upon Judah as curses, even as God told them would happen if they failed to keep his law, if they failed to obey his commands to them. But the worst thing that has come is this absence of God, as it were. Boys and girls, we know that God is everywhere. He cannot be absent from any place in creation. When we speak of absence of God in this way, what we're talking about is the absence of God in blessing, that he is only there in cursing, only there in judgment, that he has taken away his blessing from the people and he has brought these locusts in to swarm over them. We read in verse 16 these words, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? There's a sense of this relationship with God somewhat interrupted at this point. The things that God has commanded them to do in the temple are no longer able to be done, and the joy and gladness that were meant to characterize the house of God are gone because God himself has taken them away from his people. 
And so Joel is reminding these people, he's tearing back the curtain, showing them what's behind the scenes and reminding them, yes, all these physical things that are happening to you are terrible, but they're only symptoms of the spiritual reality that's underlying it. They're only symptoms of something that's a far deeper problem and that requires a far deeper solution. And ultimately, this points ahead to the day of the Lord. We can think of perhaps what we find in 2 Kings chapter 6. is The king of Syria, if you'll remember the story, is sending his army after Elijah and the servants of, God, of the man of God is terrified. He looks out. He sees all these uh, men in their armor coming towards them. He's thinking, how can we possibly defend ourselves? How can we be saved from this? And Elijah prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so Elisha prays, and the eyes of his servant are opened, and he sees how things are really not what they seemed. I don't know if you've ever read that and thought, boy, I'd like to see that. It'd be nice to see what's behind the scenes, or sometimes perhaps it'd be terrifying to see what's behind the scenes as we consider it. But as Elisha is praying for the servant to see these things and he sees them, it's as if God himself is pulling back the curtain and showing him what's backstage, what's really going on behind the scenes of this play. And that's what Joel is doing too, except with Joel, it's not necessarily good news. Joel is showing that there is something else going on here. But it's not necessarily the protection of the angelic armies that are surrounding Israel, but rather God's judgment, a preview of the day of the Lord. As we consider the fact that Joel's prophecy is really telling us about this coming day, about this last judgment, about the last day when God comes, when Christ comes in judgment on the whole earth, we can begin to ask certain questions as even Joel was beginning to ask these things of Judah. As God comes in judgment, he judges the wicked and he blesses those who trust in him, we can ask, which one are you? That was meant to be a question that the people of Judah were to ask themselves. As we'll see as we get into the prophecy more, they had somewhat taken for granted their relationship with God, thinking that they were just a part of the covenant people outwardly, and so they didn't really have to believe, they didn't really have to trust that perhaps the covenant people themselves could trust for them, that they didn't really need to have this personal experience, they didn't really need to trust in their Savior themselves, just go through the motions, go through the things, pay God lip service, and things would be fine. And certainly in any congregation of this size, and perhaps even smaller, there are probably those here who have thought the same thing. And it's somewhat easy for us to think, especially if we've grown up in the church. Yes, I've been here my entire life, I've grown up in a Christian home, and I've had Christian schooling perhaps, and I've been catechized, and I know all these things, and I show up Lord's Day in and Lord's Day out, and certainly that's going to be enough on the last day, right? Well, Joel comes to us and reminds us, no, that's not going to be enough. That merely being called one of the people of God outwardly is not enough if you are not trusting in the one who is going to bring you safely through the judgment in the first place. So this is ultimately pointing ahead to the day of the Lord. But it's also only a preview. As terrible as these things are, as awful as these things are, and you can imagine with me, you're an ancient Judah uh, farmer. And there you are and you're watching your crops being destroyed and there's nothing you can do about it. There's wave after wave after wave as we saw. These really four waves of locusts that come in and each one strips things down and leaves it so even the trees don't have bark anymore. That all the wood utensils in your house are all chewed up. All these things just seem to be gone and there's nothing left. It's like watching a forest fire rip through a part of Southern California and seeing what's left afterwards and there's just nothing. Just blackness and death and barrenness. 
And as terrible as this is, this is only a preview of these things. As all the things we see, all these wars, all these natural disasters that we even experience ourselves today are only also a preview of the last judgment. As terrible as these things are, and they are terrible, they're all meant to point us to something that's coming. They're all meant to really open our eyes and to show us what is truly coming. I don't know if you've ever been able to see an abandoned house. Boys and girls, there don't seem to be as many abandoned houses in Phoenix as I'm used to farther east when things are older. There's been more time for houses to be abandoned. But perhaps sometimes you're going through an old neighborhood and you can imagine that you're on your bike, as I remember at different times in my life, kind of seeing these houses that have been abandoned or empty for quite some time. And you begin to see that all the concrete around is beginning to crack and weeds are coming through and the yard is overgrown. It looks like it hasn't been mowed in months and months or even years. That the house is filthy and empty and things are falling into disrepair and there's just this sense of despair when you look at the house. This is meant to be lived in. This is meant to be full. This is meant to be a place of love and of security and comfort. And now look at it. That's essentially what's happened to Judah at this point. Judah is basically an abandoned, empty house as you look at the land, as you look at the land of Canaan that God has given to his people. God has come in and taken all their things away. Taken all their food, all their sustenance away. In chapter 1, verse 17, we read, Even the next year's crop is gone, the seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down, because the grain has dried up. And we aren't entirely sure what that word clods is. It's really the only time it's used in the Hebrew Old Testament, and we aren't entirely sure what it means, but we can tell the entire idea of this verse is that things have dried up. And that the seeds that they're planning on from the harvest for next year's crop are gone as well. So suddenly, in just this one verse, we see that things are doubly as bad. Not only are these things gone for this year, but they're gone for next year as well. And in chapter 1, verse 18, God begins to use words of the animals and the beasts that show that they are suffering, and he uses the same language that he uses of Israel when they're suffering as slaves in Egypt. This idea of the oppression that's coming upon all all the beings of the land. This is a preview of the final judgment, and the reality itself is coming. As terrible as these things are, as terrible as 722 BC and 586 BC are when Assyria comes in and destroys Israel and Babylon comes in and takes away Judah, these things themselves do not exhaust God's judgment. But even then, there are things that we're looking forward to. Even then, there are things that are still coming that no one escapes the day. We read in Revelation chapter 6 these quite chilling words, quite frankly. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? At that last day is presented as a day when even the rich and powerful, even the ones who can say that they have the most in life, that they have the most success, that they have the most power, They're terrified because the wrath has come and who can possibly stand against it? This is what is coming. This is the reality that is coming. The day of the Lord is coming and the just one will judge rightly. And with that, Joel basically flips into a different direction. He pivots, as it were. He begins to look at things in a different way. Different lenses are on his eyes as he gets into chapter 2. And starting at the end of chapter 2, verse 2, down through verse 11, he begins to describe another locust horde. 
another group that are coming. This is our second uh, heading, the army that he describes. And it's not a normal army, I don't have to tell you. As we read through those first 11 verses of chapter 2, perhaps you recognize there is some strange language here. And you can ask, really, what's going on? Boys and girls, have you ever read the Bible and come to places like Joel or the book of Revelation and you see all these wonderful things, all these terrible things, all these terrifying things with all these different descriptions coming and you ask, what on earth is going on? It's a good question to be asking because we're getting at the heart of the matter. What is it exactly that God is telling us through these word pictures that he gives and through this, these um, visions that he is giving to his prophets? Well, we see here that what we find in this army are basically locusts, but worse. Now, keep in mind, these people have seen these insects come in and take away everything. They've seen swarm after swarm, millions upon millions of them. As we considered last time, that in one square mile, there might be up to 40 million locusts in one of these desert swarms. And so they're everywhere, and the sound of them is everywhere. And kill as many as you can, they're just going to keep coming. It's not going to even make a dent in it. There's nothing really you can do, especially in those days, to keep them out. And now Joel comes and says, oh, and by the way, something else is coming. Locusts, but far worse than any you can imagine. Far worse than anything that you have seen up until this point. We can perhaps describe this as a nightmare that you're generally beginning to realize is real. I don't know if you've ever had one of those dreams where it starts off quite normal and everything seems to be okay. And then the longer you go in the dream, the worse things get and the more terrifying it gets. And it seems so real that sometimes when you wake up, you can't even tell if it was a dream or if it's something that really happened to you. That's basically what Joel is describing here, except it is real. It is something that is coming. It is something that is a reality that is on its way. We see here that many of the things that the locusts do here are not necessarily how locusts ordinarily behave. We see in chapter 2 and verse 3, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Isn't that quite a word picture for us? Think, boys and girls, of the Garden of Eden, of this lush, garden where God has provided everything and it's surrounded by rivers and it's green and has everything that man could need, everything that man could want there. And the locusts are coming and before them everything is like this wonderfully well-watered garden and they come through and they destroy and they take away everything and behind them it's just a desert. Behind them it's like what we find as we drive through, for example, the state of Utah. Rock and not much else. Really what God's doing here through Joel is he's reversing what he often commonly does. He often says that the blessings of God are going to come and it's going to re-Edenify, if I can make a word, the world. Even at the end of Revelation in 21 and 22, we see that the entire world now has become Eden, but even better. And that's the blessing of God. Here we see it's almost the reverse that's coming upon the earth. It's the reverse of the blessings that God gives. In verses, two, or verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, we see that this is the result of this army that's coming. And these locusts are described in terms that the people back then would have only seen as a great army, one of the empires of the day, coming and sweeping through and taking everything before them. An unstoppable force that comes. We see that they are marching to war. The description in chapter 2 really begins with this army far off in the distance, but there are signs that they are coming. And it really traces their march through the land as they come closer and closer to Jerusalem here. And these ordinary defenses are useless. 
Those words that we see for weapons are words that we aren't entirely sure if they mean javelins or arrows or what exactly they mean in their ancient context as they use different kinds of weapons back then than we do today. But the picture is of someone trying to defend themselves against these locusts, of an army standing in front of them and being defenseless. That the weapons don't work. If you've ever seen video of what happens after a volcanic eruption, perhaps you can think of these sorts of things. You see all the lava, all the molten rock and magma flowing down off the side of the volcano and sometimes coming at incredible speeds, and you just think, what on earth can you do to stop it? What can you put in front of it that wouldn't be rolled over or burned up or destroyed? And the answer, as far as I know, and there might be a scientist here who could tell me otherwise, but as far as I know, is there's nothing really that you and I could do. It's coming, we see it coming, and there's nothing to stop it. That is what these locusts really are, as God gives us the imagery for them. It's a hopeless battle. In verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2, we see the same sort of language that's used of the Canaanites when Israel comes in under Joshua for the conquest, and their hearts are basically melting within them, and they have no courage left because they know that the Lord, that Yahweh himself, is on the warpath, and there's nothing that they can do to stop him. And so we can begin to wonder, okay, if this is the army, if these are the locusts, if these are the ones who are coming, if God has proclaimed that they are on their way, what exactly is this meant to convey to us? Well, we see that they have a certain commander. That it's not the locusts themselves that are the scary thing, but the fact that they come at the behest of God. That God, the Lord himself, is the divine warrior who has come. We read in places like Exodus 15, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And that's a theme throughout the Old Testament and the New. That God comes in judgment on those who rebel against him. And he comes and he saves his people and rescues them. But now we see that this is something unexpected for Judah. They're expecting that, of course, God will come on behalf of ourselves. That he will come against our enemies. But this idea of God coming and bringing judgment even upon his people is something that they're not expecting. Something that they're not looking for. When God goes to war, creation trembles. We see that in places like Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And that's just God coming and making a covenant with his people. That's God coming in his wonderful majesty and his righteousness and his holiness and the sinful people recognizing who they are in the face of him. But now he's coming for war. Now he's coming in judgment. Notice how suddenly it becomes cosmic terror here, starting in verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. That's one of the, end, the indications we have that these are not normal locusts. Whenever we find that sort of language in the Old or New Testament, it has to do with God himself coming in judgment. That's ultimately what the day of the Lord is. It sounds somewhat like Psalm 99 and verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And we can multiply verse after verse after verse that shows that when God is in control, when God is ruling and sinful people recognize that, there's trembling. That when the creator comes, even the creation itself quakes. The creation itself trembles because of who he is and what he has come to do. And then we see in verse 11 these words as we end this section here. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And so we see that throughout this judgment, as we're given this picture of these locusts to see really what it would look like, ultimately what is happening is, it is a judgment according to the voice and the word of God. We know that God himself used his word, used his voice to speak creation into existence. That he spoke all these things, he decreed all these things, he decreed creation and redemption, and he has also decreed judgment. Joel's reminding us of these things. That he comes and speaks a word of judgment to those who are trusting perhaps in themselves and in their own standing as they come before him. And so this army is coming. They've already heard the announcement. They've already seen one army come. They've seen the ordinary, or as ordinary as they can be, locusts coming in a special judgment of God upon themselves. And they're reminded, they're told by Joel, by the prophet that God himself has sent, that God himself is coming with an even greater and even more terrifying army on the last day. The day of the Lord will come. And we can begin to ask, what do we do? What is the answer to this? Because we find it all throughout Scripture. It's not just in Joel. In fact, perhaps one of the things that we're missing by being less familiar with the minor prophets is a sense of what the day of the Lord will truly be like. Just listen to some of these words that come from different minor prophets in the Old Testament. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to terrify the earth, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants." Brothers and sisters, I would propose to you that there is nothing more terrifying than that. That all these previews of the final judgment that come to us, all these wars, all these natural disasters, all this pain and suffering that we experience will either end or we can escape them. This is something that comes for us all. Something that comes for the entire creation. And there's no escaping it. There is no place where God is not sovereign. There is no place where he is not ruling. There is no place where he will not judge. And so we can ask, what should our response to this be? Well, that brings us to our final heading this morning, the alarm. Perhaps you notice that we skipped verses. That we went from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2 at the end of verse 2. And perhaps you're not a math person like me, but we recognize this is not how things normally go. We see there's an alarm that's sounded here at the beginning of chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And perhaps that's something that we just read over. And especially as we get into the description of this army of locusts that is coming and the terror and the fear that that brings to the people as they hear these things, we can begin to forget that this had even come to us. But I propose to you that's probably the main points of this section of Joel. And here in this alarm that is sounded, we are reminded that God himself, the Lord who comes in judgment, is also a God who is gracious. Because we may be reading this at this point. 
Coming all the way to chapter 2 and verse 11, and we ask, where is God's grace? Because we know, especially as those of us who are trusting in Christ, that we've experienced the grace and mercy of God, and we can see this picture of the Lord's last day, of the day of the Lord of the last judgment, and ask, where is the grace here, and where is the hope? Where is the mercy? Where is the forgiveness? We begin to see it here at the beginning of chapter 2. And Joel's going to turn here in a few verses as we even come next Sunday, uh, Lord's morning, to come to chapter 2 and verse 12. We're going to see that things begin to change as he calls for repentance. But even here in chapter 2, verse 1, we can ask, who sounded the alarm? Something perhaps that we tend to miss at first reading. Remember, boys and girls, Joel heard the message of the Lord. The Lord came to him and gave him these words to speak. And then Joel came and spoke to the people of Judah. But who is speaking in chapter 2 and verse 1? Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Whose holy mountain? Joel's holy mountain? Certainly not. This is God. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh himself speaking. Calling out an alarm. Calling out the trumpet. That two, chapter 2 and verse 1 is the only time the Lord has directly spoken this far. Instead of giving his word to his prophet and telling him to go, this is actually the words of God calling out to his people, calling out the alarm, calling out for a trumpet to be sounded. We see in Joel, chapters 1 and 2, that sin kills and destroys. But that's really the picture that the locusts bring to us and the picture of the last judgment, the last day, the day of the Lord that's coming, brings to us. That our sin and rebellion against the Lord can only bring condemnation and wrath if we are left to ourselves. That it empties the land. That it takes away the things that we need to survive, the things that we are depending on to survive instead of God are all taken away from us. And then on the very last day of judgment, this will happen on a complete scale. There will be nowhere to hide, nothing to trust in other than God. Chapter 2 and verse 1 begins to remind us that only God can restore what sin and judgment take away. In the words of one commentator, Their sins may have been great, but so is Yahweh's mercy. He does not have to forgive, but he does. From the point of view of the new covenant, he did not have to give his only son for the sins of the world, but he did. And so we're reminded of the grace of God even in the midst of the promise of impending judgment and doom. That God is gracious and we have been warned. And in fact, telling us of this day that is coming is one of the most gracious things that God could possibly do. That there was Judah, trusting in themselves or trusting in their relationship as God's people without actually trusting in God himself, going through the motions, paying lip service to their Lord. God brings judgment upon them. And as harsh as it may seem and as destructive and painful as it was, it's meant to remind them of what's coming on the last day. And today we have the same thing done to us. God speaks through his word and reminds us of this locust plague. And he reminds us of the plague that is one day coming to the whole earth in the last judgment when those who are trusting in anything other than God will be swept away. That God, in his kindness, reminds us that we need to be found in him. Specifically, that we need to be found in Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
simply going to church, simply existing within the visible people of God will not be enough. You can't trust in the church to believe and trust for you. But that God is calling you to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ, to trust in him as your Savior, to repent of these things, because every preview of the final judgment is meant to call us to repent, to open our eyes to what is coming. What does Joel do in chapter 1 and verse 19? He says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. These terrible things have come, and drought and fire have followed after the locusts. What does Joel do? He turns to God and he cries out to him. The prophet becomes one of the suffering people, and he models for them what they are to do as a result of these things. And brothers and sisters, it's what we're supposed to do as well. We didn't get there this morning, but in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read these words. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And we can go through the motions, we can pay lip service to God, we can do the outward things all we want. But what God is calling us to do as he reminds us of these things, he reminds us of the judgment that is coming and the judgments that have already come, is to truly repent, to turn from our sins, to trust in Christ and in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Because this judgment of coming, the day of the Lord is truly near. He's calling us to proclaim this to others, certainly, but also to take heed for ourselves. Judah thought God was tame. They thought if they did certain things in a certain order that he would always be there and never turn against them in any way. That judgment was not something that he really did to them, only to their enemies. They're reminded in the book of Joel and in the circumstances around the book of Joel that that is not true. God is calling us to do something very specific and at the basic uh, basis of it, on the foundation of it, he's calling us to not believe in a tame, domesticated God because he does not exist. This is the God who is in control. This is the God who is righteous and holy. This is the God who is coming in judgment. And only in Christ do we have hope of coming through the final judgment unscathed. That all sin will be judged. We can be guaranteed of that. It will be judged on the last day. Or, for those who are in Christ, it was judged on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Those are the two options, and God calls us to repent and to trust in Christ. He's telling us, this is something you cannot escape. The judgment is coming, and you're not called to man the walls and the ramparts and to put up a defense because your weapons won't work, and the walls are useless, and they're coming in. Instead, he calls the people of God to go to the temple in sackcloth, in mourning, to repent of their sins and to call out to the only one who will save them. And as we read in chapters 2, verses 12 and 13, He will save those who call out to him in repentance, who call out to him in faith, who trust in him as the one who can save them. And so as Joel reminds us of judgment, of who our God is, and of who we truly are as sinners before him, the solution is quite clear. Flee to Christ. Throw yourself on his mercy and grace, on the grace of the one who even brings the judgment 
and know that only if you are found in him will these things pass you by. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these often heavy words that we find not only in Joel, but throughout the prophets. We know, Lord, that we are made of the same stuff as the people of Israel and Judah, that we are sinners even as they were, that we are faithless even as they were. But we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in the one who is faithful in our place, for the one who lived and died and rose again for us, who even now intercedes for us at your right hand, who gives us the right to call you Father, who gives us the right to come into your presence, even as we are doing now. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would use this word to strengthen faith in hearts where it exists and to create it where it does not. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.